It is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. Scott Radley sitting in for Rick Zamper today. We are going to be talking about housing prices in Ontario and Hamilton. Not exactly breaking news, but some new science behind what's going on. There is a program the city is putting together to help women in the creative industries who are running businesses. We'll talk about that one. The Royal Tour is coming to Canada. Is it a good idea? Because Prince Charles doesn't seem to be very well liked. The Ontario leadership debate happened on Monday night. We will talk about who did well, who didn't do well, whether anybody moved the needle. Drinking in public parks. Illegal, right? Uh, Not so much. Turns out the bylaw that we thought was in place isn't really in place. Huh. So now there's going to be refunds for people who got tickets. We'll talk about that situation and a troubling, I would suggest, a troubling decision by the Supreme Court of Canada ruling that extreme intoxication is a defense against violent crimes. Where does this leave us? Where does this leave vulnerable people or victims of crime? It's it it seems to raise an awful lot of questions. We'll talk about it all. Stay with us. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. I want to bring in Dr. Kathy Brock, Program Director, Professor and Senior Fellow in the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University. Uh, thank you for the time today. Appreciate it. You're welcome, Scott. Glad to be here. So were you lying in bed buzzing after that debate yesterday, just like gurgling with enthusiasm? Well, I'm enough of a politics nerd that I did, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, let's go through this because the one thing, the first thing in any of these debates, and I don't know when this started, but the first question is, was there a knockout punch? I, I honestly cannot remember the last time in a political debate that there was a knockout punch, but was there anything vaguely approaching that yesterday? I don't think there were real knockout punches, but I do think there were some good lines that were used during the debate by each of the candidates. Um, Doug Ford was defending his record. He said, get it done. He didn't go on attack too much, though. That was interesting. Um, Del Duca, he did go on attack, and it came back on him because Andrea Horvath at one point said, the reason why you don't want to talk about the 2018 election is because you lost all but seven seats. And he kind of stood back for a second. Gulp, yeah. So that kind of knocks out his um, use of that line. And then Mike Schreiner said to Andrea Horvath, well, the NDP amended its platform three times to keep up with us. And (laughs) you kind of looked at her and thought, oh, dear. She kind of lost that one. So there were some funny moments, some light lines, knockout punches. No. It's really interesting. Early, uh, last week I was talking with a guest and they had looked into the what works in, in politics. And one of the things that they found is the, the personality, the likability of the leader is way more important than the minutia of the platform because most people aren't going to dive down into a, I think the NDP platform is 180 pages long. They're not going to read that. And so it's, do you like, can you see yourself voting, having a coffee with this person, which is something we've known for a while. But to your point, I noticed yesterday Schreiner, Ford, Horvath, all making conscious efforts to not look angry, to smile at the camera, to look like they were pleasant people. Del Duca was the one who, as you say, looked like he was trying to attack. I don't know in the end if that's going to end up hurting him, that he might have looked like the least 
what's the word I'm looking for? Pleasant, least lighthearted, least whatever the word is, person on the stage. I think you're right. And if you look at this debate compared to the first debate, in the first debate, the closing, he said, here's why I'm here. And you had a feeling that, okay, this is a person that maybe might be interesting to speak with over a beer or a coffee, whatever. But in this one, he really struggled to try to put together the personal with the ideas. He's a thoughtful guy. He knows his stuff. But sometimes he goes after others too hard. And he really has trouble speaking in a sincere way, in a personal way to the voter. He pulls back. He goes too much to his speaking points. Even with the pandemic, he said, the main lesson is follow the science. Well, most people know, no, you have to follow your heart as well as the science. And I think that's where his weakness is. He might have drawn some votes, but only, I think, because Andrew Horvath was weaker. So well, exactly yeah, and you right. end up and, and you end up with three of them who are essentially fighting for the same clientele. And I, I know clientele might be a weird use, weird word to use in this case, but three of them are going for the left slash progressive vote, and they don't they can't just then go after Doug Ford as the incumbent. They have to fight among themselves. That probably hurts all of them a little bit. It's really tough for them. Although if you look at Mike Schreiner, he is doing it well. He's thoughtful. He was honest. He's genuine. When he was asked about Highway 413, he said that's an absolute disaster. He was clear-cut. And he also said at one point, are you going to raise taxes? And he said, yes, on the wealthiest. So people thought, okay, this guy is going to talk straight to us. Andrew Horvath really struggled, I thought. So what you're saying is these three have a challenge, and Doug Ford, he's premier, so he's got to make sure he looks like a premier. He can't engage in the street fighting that the others have to do if they want to score some points. Does Schreiner have it easiest, though, and certainly not because he's the favorite, but because the very opposite. There's very little to lose for the Green Party because there's not a poll in the universe that shows them competing for this. So he kind of has a lot of the pressure off him, doesn't he? He really does. He And you could see that. He was relaxed. He was smiling. He even laughed when they asked him what regret he had in politics, and he said he didn't run in the right seat the first time he ran. Okay, people can understand that, and they could identify with him. So he did that very well. I think Andrea Horvath missed a uh, point when she didn't attack him or didn't put forward their agenda on climate change and when she agreed with his points, now, the agreement wasn't necessarily bad at the outset, but she didn't get her party points across. And, you know, it was interesting seeing the political acumen of Doug Ford, because he actually started to say, I agree with Mike Schreiner. I can work with him by the end of the debate, realizing Mike Horvath was doing so well. That's interesting when you're under pressure to recognize mm. that. You know, but yeah, it's funny you say that because I mean, Doug Ford, the, the, the caricature of him is that he's a, you know, he's not that bright. He's a pretty skilled politician and you see this, whether you agree with him or not, that's a whole different thing, but he's not without his political abilities. He really does have good political ability and he can connect with people. So when he was asked about the pandemic, he said that was the most challenging time of his life. And you had a feeling that he was being very sincere about that. Mm. And when he said, 
I will never let that happen to another leader, ever. And he added the ever. And you just thought, boy, he has conviction on that. And he showed himself as a leader, which is one of the reasons why people put a lot of faith in him to handle the economy. One more thing, and we got to run, unfortunately, and that is... um, there were a lot of issues that got brought up. You just mentioned climate plans and all the rest. But ultimately, in this debate at this time, do you think the audience was really listening to anything other than how are you going to make my cost of living go down? I mean, all these other things are important in the grand scheme of things. But I just wonder if anyone's listening to anything other than how is my life going to be more affordable right now? I think you're exactly right on that. And that's why Doug Ford was hitting jobs. Del Duca was saying, I get your pain. He said that a couple of times. Andrea Horvath was say, talking about individuals, how they've been affected. And Mike Schreiner was a little weaker on that point, but he did say that they're going to restructure taxes to ensure people can be helped who need it. Dr. Kathy Brock, Program Director, Professor and Senior Fellow in the School of Public Study, po- School of Policy Studies, pardon me, at Queen's University. It's a mouthful, but we got there. I uh, really appreciate the time today. Thank you for all this. Thanks so much, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton Podcast from 900 CHML. If you are a person in Ontario, in Hamilton, in this area, who has been looking to buy a home in the last year or two, What we're about to talk about probably is not news being broken to you. Uh, In fact, we're probably telling you the last thing you want to hear. But a new report is out saying during the first two years of the pandemic, during the two years of the pandemic, Ontario saw the worst erosion of housing affordability in any province in this country. This report is done as the, the, the chief writer is Dr. Paul Kershaw, a Generation Squeeze founder and lead author of the study who joins us now. Thank you for the time today. My pleasure. This, um, as I said, and, and I don't mean to be glib or flip or anything else, but I mean, it, this may be one of the well-duh stories. If you're living here and you've been trying to buy a house and that doesn't take away from your research, it's this is something that the people who have been trying to get into the market have really been feeling for the last two years. Yeah, and I think, though, that the what we're trying to do to help overcome the well do is to really put it in context. It's not just that Ontario lost control over home prices more than any other province during the pandemic. It's that over that two-year period, Ontario has lost control over home prices more than any other jurisdiction at any other time in the last half century. That is what has gone on. And Hamilton and the Hamilton-Burlington area are really the epicenter of that in no small part. It used to be that I could say, well, Hamilton doesn't have the same degree of unaffordability that many BC communities do. Now, other than Metro Vancouver and the GTA, Hamilton-Burlington as an area is the most unaffordable place anywhere in the country. And by the same token, Hamilton is producing the most wealth for homeowners pretty much of anywhere in the country. And that is just strikingly remarkable. And I don't think that's duh. I don't think we talk about it that way at all. Well, no. And and when I say that, I I don't mean it that the the science and the research is not excellent. More just for the people who are are trying to get in. And again, that was certainly not meant to be. Oh, I didn't take any offense whatsoever. No, no. But it's so obvious around here when you go on to realtor.ca or whatever else and day after day you look at prices and you go my goodness and and i think one of the things that your study says uh and you can whittle it down to exactly right but for the a typical 
young buyer, someone who's, I guess, sort of reasonably new in the working world and looking to now save some money and to get into the market, the price, the average price of a home would have to drop by almost half a million dollars to be affordable. That's stunning. Here. Yeah, it would have to drop by about half a million dollars in Ontario on average. Uh, Hamilton's sort of in, in that general ballpark as well. Or you would need to have your earnings increase sure. by more than 150%. And so go from sort of 50-ish thousand to uh, over 130,000. So why has this happened? I mean, look, we, we, we always point to the migration from Toronto because Toronto is so darn expensive that people are moving down the highway and coming here. I mean, is that... Is that solely what's at play here? Well, I think there are a number of factors. The first, I think it's safe to say that Ontario over the last several years did not do as much as British Columbia to try and um, dampen down speculation. And so your housing policy has not been as aggressive in Ontario to try and do all that it could to slow down home prices. And as a result, you've now caught up to British Columbia. It is a horrible thing to have caught up with. It's not great to share with the Wild West that now you are the most unaffordable place as well. And I suspect if you continue on this trajectory, you'll surpass us. Like that is dreadful for your economy. It's dreadful for the way that hard work pays off. And so the housing policy has been slower to adapt in Ontario. Second, and this actually happens more at a federal level, but Statistics Canada is lousy at measuring housing inflation. And you're like, why do I care about that? Because as Statistics Canada measures housing inflation, it goes into their overall estimate of inflation generally. And the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, is how the Bank of Canada goes and says, oh, is our interest rate policy doing what we want? Is it keeping inflation below 2%? And for many, many years now, StatsCan hasn't captured what's been going on with housing prices in their measure of inflation. And so they've been giving the wrong signal to the Bank of Canada. The Bank of Canada then says, we don't have an inflation problem until very recently. So they kept their, their interest rates at historically low levels. When they're low levels of cheap credit, people borrow more credit, they bid up the price of housing, and that contributes to your problems, especially in Hamilton, Burlington area, as people are leaving the GTA in search of more space and affordability, and they have capital to do so. I think, go ahead. No, please go ahead. Go ahead. I think a third thing that happened in the pandemic is we were required to physically distance and many more people were working from home and didn't have to have such a strong connection to their place of op- their place of work in that office. Then people could be searching further from their place of work for that place that might give them that home that might give them access to the ground or a little more space as they're physically distant. And so we spread the contagion of rising home prices more aggressively during the pandemic. And last but not least, There's not a single level of government right now, provincially or federally, including during the election right now going on in Ontario. I don't have your party saying that they want home prices to stall. And if we don't want home prices to stall, then we are never going to address the unaffordability challenge. And the reason we don't want home prices to stall is because people are quite content with getting wealth windfalls while they're sleeping and watching TV. I'm a homeowner. I'm in Metro Vancouver. My home went up by half a million dollars last year. You can see why people get addicted to that. Hmm. And when I was just about to jump in, it's amazing. You answered the very question I was about to ask, which was, okay, so this has been going on for a while with Toronto people moving here and finding homes in Hamilton. Why during COVID, uh, as I say, I think you just answered that, which is we're, we weren't moving around too much. We're looking for a place that we can be because we're sort of stuck there. That makes a home a very appealing, a very enticing thing in those moments when you don't want to be stuck in a one bedroom or studio apartment with no balcony, no way out. It's it's you want something. 
That's precisely right. And that in the context with the historically low interest rates that we put in place during the pandemic to fight what we thought was going to be a lack of economic stimulus, all sorts of good reasons for the Bank of Canada have done that generally. But the collateral damage to housing has been enormous. And so we already had a housing system that worked terribly for producing affordability before the pandemic and worked excellently for producing wealth for homeowners. We just then exacerbated or augmented what was working well to produce wealth for homeowners, and as a result, further eroded affordability. And I think a group like Gen Squeeze, and we're based at the University of BC, I think we've done a lot over recent years to get people to recognize that growing housing unaffordability is a problem. But we have not been as successful yet in having people say that rising home prices aren't uniformly bad or uniformly good, and housing inflation you know, the people who benefit from housing inflation are different than the people who benefit from gas inflation. So not everybody is a uh, an owner of an oil company. Uh, most people aren't owners of oil companies. So the kind of profiteering that happens from rising oil prices right now with gas inflation vexes everybody. But we aren't so frustrated about the way in which profits are being taken from home ownership because actually the majority of Ontarians are homeowners. And I think we need to wrestle with that dynamic a little bit more. Yeah. And you know what? There's, there's so many other things I wish we could talk about. And, and I mean, whether it's supply, I mean, we, we here in the province right now in the middle of the election, we've got amazing promises from all the parties about how many homes they're going to build. And everybody I talk to says, yeah, right. Um, like it's even if even the ideas of how to fix this, are being met with great skepticism because of where we are now. And I, I, I don't see a whole lot of people expecting the prices to go down anytime soon. But anyway. well, I do you think supply clearly is an important issue? And so when you think more at a granular level at local politics, we do have municipalities that have been somewhat slow to want to open up their single detached housing zoning so that we can add more density. That is something you are hearing multiple parties talk about wanting to do more of. That's positive. But we have to be very careful in thinking that just the supply conversation in a really blunt way in and of itself is going to solve our housing and affordability challenges, especially by bringing, you know, how do we ensure we bring in new supply that is in reach for what people can actually earn? Mm. And this is a huge problem where if we don't say, we don't, if we don't say our goal for home prices going forward over the next many years is that they don't rise anymore so that earnings have a chance to catch up, we, we can't get anywhere in terms of solving unaffordability because you can't build new rental that comes in at affordable. You can't build new co-op that comes in affordable. You can't build new condos that come in at affordable levels if we don't slow home prices. So down. many, so many things we got to run, unfortunately. Dr. Paul Kershaw, really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. Have a great day. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There are a lot of jobs and businesses in the creative sector in this city that are popping up. We've got more and more movies and TV shows being filmed here. We've got all kinds of other things that are going on in this community. And so a new program has been developed, a women in business mentoring program for those in the creative industries. Debbie Spence is the business development consultant of creative industries with the city of Hamilton who joins us now. Debbie, thanks for the time today. Good morning. So tell me what this is what is this designed to do and what is this going to do? Sure. So uh, the program is for, as you said, it's for creative industries. And then specifically, it's for people that have just started businesses, um, maybe six months to five years. Um, and it's people that are operating businesses in film, fashion, and then music. 
And then the way we have um, identified women, it's women plus, um, which is people who identify as women as well as transgender, gender fluid, non-binary, and gender non-conforming individuals. Is there something, because you've specifically pointed it to the creative industry, it makes me wonder, is there something unique or challenging about carving out a business in the creative industry more than in some other kind of industry? Is it a different thing? Yeah, so I, I would say it definitely is. There's a number of reasons why we've um, selected Women Plus and then why we've selected these specific uh, areas, film, music, and fashion. Um, and one of them is because creative industries in Hamilton and other cities too, but they're very highly collaborative. Um, and this sector really benefits from informal and then also formal networking or mentoring types of things. And then... Um, in terms of film and music in particular, there's long been identified a need provincially, nationally, and even internationally for more women plus led businesses in these areas, because women plus are underrepresented uh, in both film and music. And then in terms of fashion, we really want to increase the number of businesses uh, in Hamilton that are operating within fashion. So this is one way to do that. And then kind of the third element is um, within creative industries in particular, although it does impact a number of sectors, but COVID has greatly impacted Women Plus, um, their ability to work and grow their business. Um, so this presents an even stronger case uh, to provide this additional assistance through mentoring and support uh, and focused recovery efforts. I'm interested that you say that it, that there are not as many or as more difficult for women in these industries. I would have thought in the creative industries, we would have had more women who were involved. Uh, I would say, yeah, I mean, this, the, it, that's something that um, people may think of, um, especially in terms of fashion. Um, and again, that tends to be the case, but we need more people uh, within the sector uh, and we need to support it in that way. Then when you look at film and, um, and music, it does tend to be, even when you look at musicians, it does tend to be more male um, dominated uh, in, in certain areas and in certain areas of the field. Uh, and there's been, again, even the sectors themselves, provincially and nationally, are trying to increase uh, the coverage and make it more diverse. Um, so, yeah, you we want to see more women within those careers. We want to see women mentoring women, women empowering women uh, within these fields. And so how will this work? Explain how the program is going to operate and, and how it's going to help women to succeed in these areas? Yeah, so we're offering, uh, we've got six mentors, two mentors in each of the different areas. They're all Hamilton-based um, businesses. Uh, and what they will do is um, it'll be about three hours and they can kind of figure out how they want to uh, plan that out. Uh, could They could do virtual uh, conversations or meet in person. Uh, and it's really focused on career and business development within those areas, film, fashion or music. And then the mentors, uh, again, they're very experienced uh, in their sectors. So we'll match a music business um, with a music mentor. Uh, and then they'll offer some guidance and feedback around the key skills and competencies within those areas. Uh, and then also around business planning, client or customer development. Uh, again, it's really intended to match someone who's emerging with an existing uh, business. And they'll, um, again, kind of offer some of those lessons that they learned along the way. 
Is the thought then that it's tougher for women in these businesses to make it work? Or is it simply that we're trying to lure and attract more women to these jobs because they are there if they want them? I would say it's both. Um, so I think it's on, on both sides. Um, but it is particularly more difficult in general uh, for women to, um, you know, grow and expand businesses. And then particularly within creative industries, um, creative industries is a little bit different in general, um, because typically they're looking at their, they go to school or they've maybe apprenticed somehow, um, and they have the Um, like the harder technical skills, but it's those business skills. How do you navigate through the growth of that specific business? And that's why it's really essential to have a mentor, someone to help guide and then collaborate within those sectors. That's where it really uh, provides that additional lift and that additional assistance. What's the reaction been to this? Have you, I mean, you've got certain numbers of spots. Have they filled? No, we just launched the program uh, last week. uh, And uh, right now we're kind of starting it off um, with the deadline. Initial deadline is uh, May 23rd. um, And then we'll see how the program uh, goes. We've had a lot of um, interesting calls uh, in terms of what is this program about? Um, You know, am I eligible to apply? Um, So that's great. We do have a pilot program. So we have a smaller number of of uh, spaces available and then we'll see uh we'll see how it goes in terms of uh, potential expansion that is debbie spence business development consultant of creative creative industries in the city of hamilton with the new program to help women in the creative industries if you are a business owner you can uh, how could they get in touch debbie if they want to participate if there's someone who's interested in this how do they reach out Yeah, so they can go online. Um, The website is hamilton.ca and then forward slash women in business mentoring. You can also probably Google it as well. Uh, And then if you want, you can also email me um, to ask any questions. So my email is debbie.spence, S-P-E-N-C-E at hamilton.ca. And we'd love to hear from you. Really appreciate the time, Debbie. Thanks for this today. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Day one of the Royal Tour. Well, it's a short Royal Tour and it's not coming to Hamilton, but Prince Charles and Camilla will be in this country, uh, St. John's, Newfoundland, and then I think Ottawa, and then up to the north, a, a quick touchdown and a quick stop in Canada. It's all part of the Queen's 70th anniversary jubilee tour that a number of the royals have been doing this to different places in the world you saw prince william doing this earlier and down in the caribbean but this comes at a time when polling is not favoring prince charles or the monarchy frankly uh, it seems in this country I want to bring in nathan tidridge he is a watered down high school teacher but he is also and he's a great teacher there and he's won all kinds of awards for his work in civics and everything else but he is also the author of six books on the crown and its role in canada he joins us now nathan how are you this morning good scott good to talk to you you as well. So, look, I, I'm looking at these poll numbers, and there was a poll that was done in Canada back a couple months ago, and it said, you know, the Queen is still pretty highly regarded by most Canadians, but among the least popular is Prince Charles, who is, of course, the heir to the throne. 35% of Canadians think favorably of Prince Charles. Is he the guy to carry on the monarchy down the road? I mean, I know he's next in line, but is he the guy? Well, uh, yes, he is because he automatically becomes king when the queen passes. It, 
those statistics, like those polls, I, I'm really, I'm not surprised at those numbers because we don't see him very much in Canada. And, uh, and that's not his doing. Uh, he's not allowed to come to Canada unless he's invited by the government of the day. So even this, uh, this most recent visit, which is uh, like a whistle-stop tour, that's, that's, the government has, uh, has set that out for him. He doesn't make the itinerary. He doesn't decide when he can come. And so that's the reason for that. So was not, I, I'm not surprised at that sort of polling. Yeah, I just, and again, I mean, obviously when I say, is he the guy, I understand the, the lineage. And so he will become the next king when the queen passes, hopefully no time soon. But it, it, it just, if you've got someone who just doesn't seem to move the needle for Canadians or seems yeah. to be almost unliked, is this something that's going to be healthy for maintaining Canada as part of the empire part of the commonwealth or or are we going to once he is once he becomes king are we going to do what jamaica did and say you know what i i think we've had enough now well i mean first the the empire is long dead uh, uh, yeah, I, yeah it's early in the morning the, the yeah, word popped it. out as i was saying it. <laughs> i get it i get it um i mean that's that would be up to Canadians to decide, just like it was up to uh, Jamaicans to decide. Canada's the only country that's uh, constitutionally entrenched the crown uh, in its system of government. So to, to make any changes like that would, be, uh, would mean a whole bevy of constitutional conferences. And we all know how, how those go. So it's an entrenched part of our, of our democracy if we look actually at the work that the Prince of Wales does in Canada, his, his uh, charity, um, Prince's Trust Canada, is, it's, it's a pretty extraordinary thing that's actually really aligned with, with Canadians. I think what's needed is, is kind of time. Canadians need to spend time with the Prince of Wales to, to see what his work does and, uh, and, and how well aligned it is with Canada. Yeah, and, and and here's one of the things is that this poll, and again, take I mean it's a poll, so we take from it what yeah. we want to take from it, really. Yeah. But the poll found very low numbers among Gen X and Millennials, and yeah. even Baby Boomers. So them, I don't know that they that the younger generation feels much of a connection to the monarchy. Period. And for the yeah. older people, they probably still see Prince Charles as the guy who you know the whole yeah. Diana thing and. It, it, didn't exactly go well for him in the PR world. You know, he, he seems to be in a bit of a spot here that maybe with more time, maybe we all grow very fond of him and find him to be charming and delightful and a king that we would all love to say is the king, but I, I don't know. You know, and, and that in a country that only teaches civics in Ontario and only has four provinces that mandate history for a high school diploma, I'm not surprised that our understanding of the institution uh, amongst you know uh, younger folks is like that, and that's that. That to me is is the bigger issue. I think if people, it, it goes beyond PR to understand what the crown does for our democracy, and then of course for you know treaty relationships, which are are a really integral part of its role. But but you're right in that we don't understand that Canadians by and large, and instead focus on yeah the PR. And, um, and and kind of how what, whatever the, the narrative is uh, that's that's presented in the media, and and that's an unfortunate thing. Well, I mean, the royals have become just for a lot of people just another celebrity 
gossip mag story. Right. I mean, that's and ultimately that's probably been. I mean, is it unfair to say that's been the case since Diana came on the scene? And I'm not blaming her. I'm just saying that that seems to have been kind of the moment when it became they were just enormous celebrities more than anything else. Right. But then if you talk to, say, the O'Reillys or the Argyles, or if you talk to Six Nations or the Mississaugas, uh, they'll give you a different answer as to what the crown means. And, and I'm not saying it's, it's positive or it's always positive, but it has real meaning or significance in this in the country so you're yeah that's right i think there there has been a trend to view them as celebrities but the fact is they're 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 much more than that uh and it's just all about talking kind of to the right people to the right segments of society to realize what it means for for them all right. Uh, th- this is this is probably a crazy thing to ask, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And that is, it's not just here that Prince Charles is not really held with high polling numbers and high regard. And again, that could change, I suppose, as you say, with more visibility. But is there any possibility that the royal family, the advisors, whoever looks at this and says, you know, for the long-term stability, survival thriving of the royal family maybe we should skip a generation and just have william become king now because he is probably other than the queen he's seen as the most popular royal does that is that make is there any possibility that that would ever be considered no i honestly no i i I think to be honest i think it would be inconceivable um it 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 just it, it won't happen and you can see see that and how things are playing out. The, the Prince of Wales is taking on more and more responsibilities. So is William. Um, there's not many active working members of the royal family right now. And so That's true. Um, they, they, they need everyone that they've got. But, and, and that's not the reason that they're, they're keeping him. I think it's because he's been so, so active himself that, uh, it, that's the signal that he he intends to be king. I don't know if it'll be a very long reign, but uh, but it most certainly will be him. Yeah, and he, I mean, look, he has waited his entire life for this. I, I mean, yeah. just as a human ego thing, I can't imagine him saying, "Yeah, I've just spent the last seventy whatever years preparing." But pass. Uh, I don't right. see that happening. Nathan Tidridge, always love having you on. Thanks for the time today. Hey, anytime, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Strange story this week. Turns out that everyone thought there was a bylaw in place that says you can't drink in a city park, but such a bylaw didn't actually exist. It's been discovered that that was not on the books, and so now the city is looking to refund those who got tickets for doing this. It, it is, as I say, it's a bit of a strange story. Councillor John Paul Danko from Ward 8 joins us now. Councillor, thanks for the time this morning. Good morning, Scott. How, uh, it is a weird story, and I don't think anyone was too terribly harmed by this, but how does such a thing happen? I'm not sure. It's certainly a surprise for us to find out that uh, the bylaw that we thought was on the books uh, was in, inexplicably taken off around 2005, uh, so that means that since then, there hasn't actually been a, an enforceable bylaw for the consumption of alcohol in city parks. So staff have refunded all the tickets that have been uh, recently issued, and uh, yesterday committee voted to reinstate that bylaw. Okay, so there wa- so up to 2005, we believe that there was in fact a bylaw. Yes, there is definitely intended to be a bylaw. There is, my understanding, there is a housekeeping amendment uh, back uh, 15, 16 years ago. 
And for whatever reason, it was inadvertently removed from the bylaw. How does that happen? Because you would have had to vote on that. So there would have had to have been something on the books to remove it, right? That is a very good question. Of course, I wasn't there at the time. Uh, no, fair uh, enough, fair enough. But <laughs> technically, but, like I, just the mechanics of it, I don't know how that would happen. Yeah, I think it was just something that was missed by staff. Uh, from time to time, there are housekeeping amendments to our city bylaws. And uh, for whatever reason, the, the clause, the specific regulations for alcohol consumption uh, was removed at that time. So if we have gone for 17 years almost, and 16, 17 years without one, and from the sounds of it, there have not been a ton of charges that relate to this. There's been some, but not an inordinate amount. Do we need one? Do we? You've said we're going to bring it back, but do we need such a bylaw? Well, that's a really interesting question, and that's something that I moved yesterday for a committee to consider uh, asking staff to come back with best practices for the consumption of alcohol in city parks. Um, it's something that has been on the mind of Toronto City Council as well. And I think during COVID, where we've seen people use our parks in different ways, it's a question of, is it really necessary to ban people from alcohol consumption? Um, there might be some places, you know, I'm not saying everywhere, but there might be some city parks where it would make sense to have uh, a limited access to, say, beer and wine. Um, for example, Sam Lawrence Park. Um, I'm usually out walking the dog every evening. And you see so many people just sitting, enjoying, watching the sunset and, you know, holding a travel mug. And it kind of like, well, <laughs> what, do you, what do you think you have in that travel mug? Is it, is it coffee at uh, 7.30 at night? Probably not. And it, it just reminds me of so many places in Europe, like the Piazza Michelangelo or sitting along the Seine in Paris, where you can just sit, enjoy, relax, your sur- enjoy your surroundings and uh, have a nondescript uh, glass of wine or a beer or something like that. And it's, it's really not a big deal in those places. Well, and look, I think that we certainly, um, there's two different things at play here. One is is the idea that someone can have a beer or a wine in a public park. That's part of it. The other is, can you go out and get hammered and be a nuisance? We have laws against the latter, criminal laws against the latter that, you know, public drunkenness or public intoxication, whatever. So that, even if there was not a bylaw, you still could prevent people from acting like idiots. Oh, for sure. And we don't want anybody to be uh, publicly intoxicated in our city parks uh, to be disruptive or to be, uh, you know, a problem. Uh, but like you said, yeah, we, we already do have uh, bylaws in control and, and, and actual laws in control for things like that. And like I said, those places in Europe where this is very, very common, it's not a problem because it just is part of what you do, uh, you know, as, as, the, as the culture. And, you know, I'm Eastern European background, I'm sure. Um, if you've ever been to an, intent, an event with Italians or Portuguese, you know, everybody's got a you know, drink tucked in their sock or something like that uh, with their homemade wine. So it's, it's just it's part of uh, a lot of different cultures. And you see people out in our city parks having a picnic and relaxing. And it, it just becomes a question of, you know, is, is it really necessary to have a complete ban on alcohol in all city parks? Um, some of the, you know, neighborhood parks where there's a playground and things like that, like maybe it makes sense to maintain that, but I think there are areas where, uh, where it, it could work. Let's go a little more broad here. We only have a couple of minutes, but the idea of bylaws generally, I mean, city council, that's kind of what city council does a lot of the time is pass bylaws. And we've got an enormous volume, uh, just a, a, a canon of bylaws now. Is there ever a time that council should 
take a, a week or have staff go look and say, you know what, do we really need all these bylaws on the book or can we purge a bunch of them? Because as we saw here, didn't really change anything. Well, that's also a really interesting question because if you have a bylaw on the book, you should be enforcing it. And if it's behavior that people are engaged in anyway, so like the example we used earlier with people you know, sitting watching the sunset with a travel mug, you know, we know that people are bringing alcohol to our parks and are discreetly consuming it, and it hasn't been a big deal. So if we're not enforcing those bylaws that are already there, then, then why do we have the bylaw in the first place? And I think you're right. There are a very number of bylaws that are only on a complaint basis. They're only enforced if somebody complains. And it raises the question of, like, well, if we're not actively enforcing, then why do we have that bylaw in the first place? I, I would bet you that almost everybody in the city, if they looked very closely, could probably find a bylaw infraction every single day of the year. Honestly. Oh, absolutely. You wouldn't believe the calls that we get into the, <laughs> to the Ward 8 <laughs> office for, uh, you know, bylaw infractions. And, and there's some that are very important and some less so much. John Paul Danko, Counselor for Ward 8. Appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Anytime. My pleasure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Strange story this week. Turns out that everyone thought there was a bylaw in place that says you can't drink in a city park, but such a bylaw didn't actually exist. It's been discovered that that was not on the books. And so now the city is looking to refund those who got tickets for doing this. It is, as I say, it's a bit of a strange story. Councillor John Paul Danko from Ward 8 joins us now. Councillor, thanks for the time this morning. Good morning, Scott. How, uh, it is a weird story, and I don't think anyone was too terribly harmed by this, but how does such a thing happen? I'm not sure. It was certainly a surprise for us to find out that uh, the bylaw that we thought was on the books uh, was in, inexplicably taken off around 2005, uh, so that means that since then, there hasn't actually been a, an enforceable bylaw for the consumption of alcohol in city parks. So staff have refunded all the tickets that have been uh, recently issued, and uh, yesterday committee voted to reinstate that bylaw. Okay, so there wa- so up to 2005, we believe that there was in fact a bylaw. Yes, there is definitely intended to be a bylaw. There is, my understanding, there is a housekeeping amendment uh, back uh, 15, 16 years ago. And for whatever reason, it was inadvertently removed from the bylaw. How does that happen? Because you would have had to vote on that. So there would have had to have been something on the books to remove it, right? That is a very good question. Of course, I wasn't there at the time. Uh, No, fair Uh, enough, fair enough. But (laughs) technically, like just the mechanics of it, I don't know how that would happen. Yeah, I think it was just something that was missed by staff. Uh, From time to time, there are housekeeping amendments to our city bylaws. And uh, for whatever reason, the, the clause, the specific regulations for alcohol consumption Uh, was removed at that time. So if we have gone for 17 years almost and 16, 17 years without one, and from the sounds of it, there have not been a ton of charges that relate to this. There's been some, but not an inordinate amount. Do we need one? Do we, you've said we're going to bring it back, but do we need such a bylaw? Well, that's a really interesting question. And that's something that I moved yesterday for committee to consider uh, asking staff to come back with best practices for the consumption of alcohol in city parks. Um, it's something that has been on the mind of Toronto City Council as well. And I think during COVID, where we've seen people use our parks in different ways, it's a question of, is it really necessary to ban people from alcohol consumption? 
Um, there might be some places, you know, I'm not saying everywhere, but there might be some city parks where it would make sense to have uh, a limited access to, say, beer and wine. Um, for example, Sam Lawrence Park. Um, I'm usually out walking the dog every evening, and you see so many people just sitting, enjoying, watching the sunset, and, you know, holding a travel mug. And you're kind of like, well, <laughs> what, do you, what do you think you have in that travel mug? Is it, is it coffee at uh, 7.30 at night? Probably not. And it, it just reminds me of so many places in Europe, like the Piazza Michelangelo or sitting along the Seine in Paris, where you can just sit, enjoy, relax, your, enjoy your surroundings and uh, have a nondescript uh, glass of wine or a beer or something like that. And it's, it's really not a big deal in those places. Well, and look, I think that we certainly, um, there's two different things at play here. One is is the idea that someone can have a beer or a wine in a public park. That's part of it. The other is, can you go out and get hammered and be a nuisance? We have laws against the latter, criminal laws against the latter that, you know, public drunkenness or public intoxication, whatever. So that, even if there was not a bylaw, you still could prevent people from acting like idiots. Oh, for sure. And we don't want anybody to be uh, publicly intoxicated in our city parks uh, to be disruptive or to be, uh, you know, a problem. Uh, but like you said, yeah, we, we already do have uh, bylaws in control and, and, and actual laws in control for things like that. And like I said, those places in Europe where this is very, very common, it's not a problem because it just is part of what you do, uh, you know, as, as, the, as the culture. And, you know, I'm Eastern European background. I'm sure um, if you've ever been to an, intent, an event with Italians or Portuguese, you know, everybody's got a you know, drink tucked in their sock or something like that uh, with their homemade wine. So it's, it's just it's part of uh, a lot of different cultures. And you see people out in our city parks having a picnic and relaxing. And it, it just becomes a question of, you know, is, is it really necessary to have a complete ban on alcohol in all city parks? Um, some of the, you know, neighborhood parks where there's a playground and things like that, like maybe it makes sense to maintain that. But I think there are areas where, uh, where it, it could work. Let's go a little more broad here. We only have a couple of minutes, but the idea of bylaws generally, I mean, city council, that's kind of what city council does a lot of the time is pass bylaws. And we've got an enormous volume, uh, just a, a, a canon of bylaws now. Is there ever a time that council should take a, a week or have staff go look and say, you know what, do we really need all these bylaws on the book or can we purge a bunch of them? Because as we saw here, didn't really change anything. Well, that's also a really interesting question because if you have a bylaw on the book, you should be enforcing it. And if it's behavior that people are engaged in anyway, so like the example we used earlier with people, you know, sitting watching the sunset with a travel mug, you know, we know that people are bringing alcohol to our parks and are discreetly consuming it, and it hasn't been a big deal. So if we're not enforcing those bylaws that are already there, then, then why do we have the bylaw in the first place? And I think you're right. There are a very number of bylaws that are only on a complaint basis. They're only enforced if somebody complains. And it raises the question of like, well, if we're not actively enforcing, then why do we have that bylaw in the first place? I, I would bet you that almost everybody in the city, if they looked very closely, could probably find a bylaw infraction every single day of the year. Honestly. Oh, absolutely. You wouldn't believe the calls that we get into the, to the Ward 8 <laughs> office for, uh, you know, bylaw infractions. And, and there's some that are very important and some less so much. John Paul Danko, Councillor for Ward 8. Appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this.
Anytime. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.